Wonder Things Studios proudly presents Archivos Insights, conversations with today's storytellers. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm your co-host, Alistair Stewart. And you've tuned in to Archivos Insights. Archivos Insights is a freewheeling 20 minutes or so, but those 20 minutes are pretty elastic, opportunity (laughs) to sit down with some incredible creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Because never forget, everybody, writers are like the Borg, but powered by coffee. We learn by absorbing the talents of others. (laughs) Sit. Sit at our talent absorption table. Get out your scalpels and your coffee and get ready. Because resistance is futile. <laughs> Friends, as you may have noticed, our usual co-host Marie Billado is not with us. Uh, she's she's confronted with medical challenges uh, of a most benign variety, but they have prevented her from joining us in the Archivos virtual studios. But fret not, dear friends, we have a stellar stand-in in the co-pilot seat, Alistair Stewart, my friend from across the great pond. Dear sir, it has been an Entirely too long since you have graced the Archivos Podcast Network virtual studio, man. Thank you so much for being my my wingman on this sojourn into awesomeness. Thank you so much for having me. This is I always love being here, Dave. Uh, I, and I'm really looking forward to this. And we love having you, man. We really do. And and honestly, as things are rolling out for this episode, this is just going to be an all star event. Uh, I'm I'm pumped and excited. May I may I introduce you to the, the the stellar luminary we have awaiting in the wings? Oh, please do. <laughs> Well, excellent, excellent. Just sit back, uh, uh, warm up the tea, uh, uh, and brace yourself for some awesomeness here. All right, friends, our guest host was born in Harlan, Iowa, a town that today boasts a bustling population of 5,000 people. Now, if you roll that back a few decades, we're talking the very definition of small town. A town so small, their library consisted of a single room overlooked by a golden oak circulation desk. A town of soybeans and pigs. Not exactly an auspicious or fertile ground for a hungry young mind. Or was it... (laughs) Oh, you see, friends, her family had a long legacy in publishing. Her grandfather was a major player in the publication of agricultural magazines, and both her parents and grandparents were editors and copywriters. In fact, her mother was a school librarian. Every Friday, she'd come home with an armload of books and hand them to our young guest host and her brother to read over the weekend. And I'm sorry, I've got this visual of of her mom heaving this huge stack of books into a room (laughs) and and a couple of young Tasmanian devils whirling into a literary frenzy, tearing into them and devouring them greedily. And, And friends, I may not be far from the truth because our guest host's mother has been reported to describe her daughter as a troll changeling and that some grabby troll mother had lucked into a quiet, well-mannered, obedient little human girl in the exchange. (laughs) Now, regardless of speculations into her origin, she clearly had a hunger for stories. Now, you remember that one-room library? 
Demonstrating the rigor and thoroughness that would become one of her hallmarks in the writerly arts, our guest host started in the upper left corner of the library shelves and worked her way through every one of the tomes thereupon. Her criteria was simple. Can she understand the words and was she bored? That was pretty much it. She feasted on Tolkien, Carol, Lewis, Poe, Verne, and Austin. The brothers Karamazov was a little dense for a nine-year-old, but she dug Chaucer and thrilled to the Golden Age sci-fi writers, especially A.E. von Vogt. Now, let me just slide this in here real quick. As much as she delighted in these tales, none of these authors were what you could call inspirations because... Our guest host didn't really start writing until she was 25. But when she was eh, 10 or 11, the family made a road trip to Chicago. Now, part of this trip, her mother declared, would be a visit to Crocs and Brentano's bookstore, a visit that would be several hours, at the end of which both our guest host and her brother would be given the equivalent of $65 each with which to buy books. Best mother ever <laughs> while her brother beelined to the paleontology books our guest host roamed the treasure trove of paper and ink until she ended up in you guessed it the sci-fi section among the writerly riches she acquired that day was lovecraft's the dream quest of unknown kadath a text that would both terrify and fascinate her now sidebar number one a little over a year ago, our guest host released The Dream Quest of Villet Bow, a retelling of Lovecraft's tale crafted as an exploration of how classic speculative fiction narratives fare when female characters are woven into the literary tapestry. It was nominated for both a Hugo and a Nebula and a World Fantasy and would go on to win the World Fantasy Award, so I think it's safe to say the exploration was successful. Sidebar number two, this brother we keep hearing about, he becomes a cartographer. So in addition to the delicious literary narratives feeding her soul, our guest host also has the ineffable wonder of maps and cartographic tapestries to inspire her imagination. Now, when it came time to pursue studies in the rarefied halls of higher academia, she chose St. Olaf College in Minnesota, specifically a para-college within that institution that allowed students to develop their own majors. And what, from the raw clay of academic possibility, did she craft for her major? A cultural history of England to 1066. Oh, yeah, she history nerded hard, studying <laughs> Norman, Norman culture, Latin, and Old Norse. She'd get drunk at parties and recite Anglo-Saxon verse. She was digging it. And really, I can totally see a movie montage of this stage of her life, dusty tomes and maps, lectures with frantic scribbling so fast the paper starts to smoke, drunken retellings of Beowulf amid a crowd of adoring history students. It'd be like real genius, only with history and a female protag. Somebody get on that right now. Uh, <laughs> she emerged from St. Olaf's in 1982 with a bachelor's degree and mad research skills. Combine that with her encyclopedic literary consumption skewed to the speculative end of the spectrum. And what have you got? Where do you go with that unique skill set? 
That's a really good question. Uh, (laughs) The next eight years involved a lot of exploration into exactly what her groove was. And while that encompassed a broad range of professional, creative, and personal choices, one thing that did happen was that she started writing. I know, finally, right? But you know, there's something to be said for coming in late to the game with a wealth of academic and life experience under your belt. I mean, she started writing a few years after getting her B.A., and a year after she completed her first story, a tale titled Roadkill, she sold it to a small Minnesota magazine called Tales of the Unanticipated. She sold another story the next year to Pulp House, and since then, she's sold a story or two a year to all markets and all sizes. Now, with her publishing success, the professional terrain became clearer. She was a managing editor at Tor Books, then a collections editor for Dark Horse Comics, then worked a stint at Wizards of the Coast, experiencing its acquisition of TSR, starting out as a continuity director for Magic the Gathering, and then serving as the creative director for the Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk. Yes! Uh, She was also doing workshops and seminars at the then-nascent Writers' Symposium at Gen Con, a program that has since blossomed into full-blown literary badassery, and started teaching in the summer at the Center for the Study of Science Fiction out of the University of Kansas. And there were some excursions into the IT world working with Microsoft and real networks. Now, friends, there are moments in your life when you, quote, stop and take stock. Now, these usually occur when you hit an age easily divisible by 10, but they can be triggered by extensive exposure to the dark, insidious machinations of working in corporate IT. Regardless, during these contemplative moments, you look around and try to figure out what the brightest, shiny thing in your world really is. And for our guest host, the most radiant joy was to be found during those summers teaching writing at the CSSF. It was more fun than any of the jobs she was doing, which I can absolutely believe. And so it seemed appropriate to take steps to affirm that in a more concrete manner. That resolve led to graduate work in creative writing and literature, culminating in an MFA in creative writing from North Carolina State University in 2012. Later that fall, she would join the University of Kansas English Department as assistant professor of fiction writing, a post she continues to rock to this day. Uh, She is also now an associate director of the Center for the Study of Science Fiction. Now, you may note, friends, that I have yet to mention any of the customary awards and accolades. That is because to do so would allow this already verbose and ponderous intro to be considered as a novella at the next Nebula Awards. (laughs) So let me just put it this way. If our guest host was to find herself beneath the pile of awards and recognition she's earned over the years, she would be crushed. Okay, (laughs) maybe not crushed, but certainly maimed horribly. Suffice it to say, the institutions like the Hugos, the Nebulas, the World Fantasy Award, the James Tiptree Award, and so many more have affirmed their credentials as discerning advocates of quality storytelling by recognizing our guest host's work many times over. And I haven't even gotten to her co-writing a Star Trek Next Generation novel with Greg Cox or her time serving as the co-chair of the board of the Clarion West Writers Workshop. But really, guys, I have 
got to wrap this thing up. She has run bookstores, worked as a radio announcer and engineer, and edited cryptic crosswords. She used to get a tattoo every time she sold a story. And when given the choice to fight Lovecraftian zoogs or rodents of unusual size, she'll take the R.O.U.S.'s every time. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here in the Archivos Podcast Network, Kidge Johnson. Kidge, I, I, I honestly cannot believe Hi. it has been this long before we got you into the studio, ma'am. I am so delighted to have you here. Thank you for making the time. I'm just thrilled to be here. I love talking about writing, and I especially love talking about craft. And uh, I will really enjoy this next 20 minutes as my guest. <laughs> well, actually, before we flip the switch on that clock, Kidge, I want to ask you a question off the timer. Um, obviously, there was a fair bit of stalking going on to cultivate <laughs> that, that particular intro. Um, and I found that you had mentioned that one of your guilty secrets is that you don't read much contemporary fiction in any genre. Is that still true? I don't. Uh, actually, yeah. I mean, I read, uh, uh, I read nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction, but most of what I read is really eccentric. So right now I'm <laughs> reading a book about the Norwegian immigrant experience in Wisconsin, and it's not even research. It's just fun. Um, <laughs> The book before that was a book on uh, um, ceremonial food in medieval Japan. Again, really fun. Not actually leading anywhere, but uh, <laughs> so interesting. That's awesome. Well, you know, you really are the embodiment of, of Joe Campbell's follow your bliss mandate. <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. That's very cool. All right. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and set the clock now because the questions must be asked. And the clock, as Alistair pointed out, will be treated dubiously. Uh, I will just assume that it lies when it tells us time is up. Um, <laughs> Kidge, let me let me lead off with this one. Um, you uh, said in, in one of the many interviews that I read that you try to never write the same sort of story twice. And that fascinates me, especially in the context of, of a genre that's pretty much defined by its tropes uh, uh, and, and things that are recurring and happen all the time. And I wanted to explore how you, as a writer, uh, uh, hold to that mandate and keep each story that you write uh, uh, a unique experience. Uh, that's a really interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I will just add that a false consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds. So even though I say I'm not actually going to do the same thing twice, I am perfectly willing to if I'm ever sufficiently interested. <laughs> You're here. So You're here. there's that. Um, <laughs> but I've, I guess part of this is that I was always easily bored. Uh, I, when I started writing, in my mid-twenties, that was a time in my life when I was actually reading a lot more mysteries than anything else. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of a surprise that I didn't end up writing mysteries, but I took a continuing ed class. It was taught by somebody, a uh, science fiction writer, so that's what I wrote. Uh, if it had been a different person teaching that class, I would have been writing mysteries as my guess, or romance, or high literary, or something like that. So you don't think you would have made your way back around to the speculative world, given those initial influences? I think I would have. I mean, I definitely would have, because I have gradually been making my way around to all the other fields <laughs> as well. I, it just wouldn't have been where I started. Gotcha. Uh, but I do get bored easily, and I get bored by tropic writing, by writing that hits beats and doesn't do anything new. 
which is part of why I don't read much fiction anymore. Uh, I really like the old stuff because they make so many divine mistakes. Um, <laughs> they write stories where there's no plot or they make stories where there's no actual characters or they make stories where the story's being told backwards. There's all kinds of fun things. But a few years back, I realized that this was kind of a thing I was doing, that I would write a short experimental piece of some sort. And then I would work on something bigger that was much more uh, random, something new, usually speculative because I get bored if it's just the real world. But beyond that, what kind of speculative is, is really open to whatever's hitting my fancy at the moment. Okay. As you as you embrace a story, we, we've asked this question before, and I'm curious about how this works for you. At, at what point when an inspiration strikes, do you realize that it's more than just a, a twinkle in your eye and that it's a story that actually has to be writ? I teach a workshop every summer, and I am going to answer your question, but I'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I teach a workshop every summer, and part of what we do is talk about uh, how to plot novels. And so I plot a novel every year, sometimes two novels a year, most of which I never even look at again after I've written the outline. Even though they're all perfectly valid, many of them are really interesting. Uh, but I'm just not interested in, in writing them myself. So when I die, by the way, whoever gets my stuff gets all those outlines first. <laughs> so just... just Setting up a, a, a sort of a land grab on. I was going to say I can hear the death. contention already. People jockeying for <laughs> position. But I I uh, I think that what happens is that I there's a moment which is often a phrase actually or an image, and that moment is so resonant for me that I decide that I have to write the story that leads to that moment. Mm. Uh, it. It's different for every story. Sometimes it's just an image. Sometimes it's a philosophical query that I'm in the middle of. But generally, there's a moment outside of the story itself that suddenly makes it worth telling that story. To yourself initially and then and then putting in the work to write it, it sounds like. Right, exactly. Excellent. Excellent. That, that clarified just the notion of being able to outline a novel and then not write it. I think that's incredibly liberating. I'm, 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 it is. It's fantastic. I have pages and pages of funny novels, serious novels, broody novels. I have a gothic. I have all kinds of really interesting things out there that I'm probably never going to get around to. <laughs> but but those stories have been drafted, crafted, and are poised and ready should you decide to at some point. Yeah, yeah, awesome. exactly. Very cool. Alistair, I'm handing it off to you, man. There's, there's, uh, my list is long, so I'm going to pass it off. <laughs> um, I, I, only, I really have kind of one primary question, which I think speaks to a lot of, a lot of the stuff that's already been touched on. I loved your point about how you jump around in, in genres an awful lot. And, and looking through your, your bibliography, two things really leapt out at me. Uh, firstly, that the Dream Quest developed vote is... I would say one of the three best novellas that Tor have put out through that novella line so far. Thank uh, you. It, I think it's extraordinarily smart and nuanced in a way that almost no Lovecraftian fiction ever is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I think my, my question is, how in the blue hell do you go from that to a sequel to Wind in the Willows? Actually, the riverbank came before the Dream Quest developed bow. I wrote riverbank about three years ago, and it took me two months to write. I was writing it for my very best friend, Elizabeth Byrne, and if Elizabeth is listening, hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, and it was just because 
I wanted to make her happy. And everything that happened in it, that's why there are two female animals. That's why all the adventures happen. That's why every page, every paragraph is a joke. That's why it's got all these little subversive things about gender in it. (laughs) And then I went on and did another project, which was a pseudonymous project, uh, which was a long, complicated project. And after that, I decided I was going to do the Lovecraft sequel. I really do not know why I decided this. I've always liked Lovecraft in a sort of conflicted way. But I have to admit that I read Poe a lot more often than I read Lovecraft. And I read Clark Ashton Smith a lot more often than I read either of them. So coming back to Lovecraft and then cracking open the dream quest of Unknown Kadath and seeing what was wrong with it and then trying to figure out what I would do with the same materials was a much more intellectual process than Riverbank. Um, and I think that's why Riverbank seems like a lighthearted comedy and Valet Bow is a much more uh, uh, philosophic, much more meatier work for a lot of people, I should say. Well, and it sounds like the challenge presented to you was much more meaty to work with Lovecraft, as, as you mentioned, because he is so low on your list. The others that you are much more enamored of would have probably been an easier task and, and you, you, you would have gotten bored. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I've been asked by Jonathan Strahan, the editor, whether or not I could ever write another Velvet Bow story. And if I did, it wouldn't be a Dreamland story because Velvet can't go back. And Clary Gerard's story, which is in the Dreamlands, would be interesting, but but that's a different kind of story than I want to tell. But part of my concerns here are that all the stories I can imagine putting Velvet Bow into are stories where I'm fine with the originals. I'm really well content <laughs> with, I have nothing that I need to say in response to uh, Fawford and the Grey Mauser, for instance, um, and the, or Verne, Jules Verne, or people like that. So I'm not actually sure if I'm going to ever readdress Velvet, but I like to think she goes out and has fantastic adventures. This is something which I find really interesting, because one of the things that always tickles the back of my brain is the interaction between an author, what they write, and the topography that that story exists on. And it, I find it really interesting how, how you've talked about writing The Riverbank, and how that almost maps onto the Piper at the Gates of Dawn chapter in the original book for me. Right. It's just something that just seems to surge up and happen and drop away again. And right. I, 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 I find that and I find your incredible kind of open-mindedness for genre really, really interesting, especially as, I mean, we all work in speculative fiction, which, as you all know, has a tendency to go, was it 1954 brilliant? Wasn't that great? And I I loved Ricketts. Ricketts were the best. You know, you know, know, I really think that Mission of Gravity rocks. And I actually do think that that's one of my favorite books of all time. And every time that's another one of those books that I think uh, I adore that book. Is it sexist? Well, there's not one single female in it that we know of. So who can tell? I mean, for all we know, Barlinen and all his little friends are all female. We have no idea. Maybe they hatch out of eggs. Maybe they procreate by budding off each other's shoulders or something. So I, I, that's true. I mean, even, even I look back and say, oh, my goodness, there was some great stuff back then. But there was a lot of really vile or annoying or tedious stuff as well. And a lot of the canon actually is quite tedious. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I very much take both, both sides of that because it, it's weird. As, as a podcaster and as a critic, 
I, I find I have to constantly exist in this moving window of now. Yes, yes. While simultaneously being very aware of the past, but trying my hardest to not be beholden to it. And it's, I, I think it's one of the reasons why I've come back to Dreamquest of Velvet Bow as many times as I have. Because I grew up around Lovecraft. I think Call of Cthulhu was the first game I got horribly killed in. <laughs> I, oh, I never forget your first time, do you? I, I once placed second in a high school role-playing tournament because my third character that session was the last person to die. That was a Cthulhu game. I will, so a win. I will <laughs> That's to, right. Last man standing, blat. There we go. I will absolutely go, go to my grave proud of that. But I, I, I just, I, I think your attitude towards the kind of inevitable backwards facing stuff we all have to do is incredibly healthy. And it's Im- embodied absolutely in Dreamcast Developed Bow, which is up and down a perfect textbook Lovecraft story, absolutely unlike any other Lovecraft story. And I mean, I, I'm a nurse's kid, so my first instinct is always, let's stitch everybody up and make everybody feel better. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. My, you know, I, I really feel that there is something there which the entire industry could do with looking at, which is, yes, let's be very attentive of the past, but let's come to the past with the present's eyes, because that will create something new. And I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you do that and by the way that you pinball around all these various subjects. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Um, that doesn't even sound like a, this a comment more than a question. <laughs> uh, which is, right. is, is which is exactly the kind of thing which gets everybody's you know eyes rolling at, at convention. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation with Kids Johnson after this brief promotional break. You've been hearing us talk a lot about Archivos, how it helps you document and organize your story worlds and illuminate them like no other story development tool can. I mean, really, it's like a gift to writers, a a lovely storytelling present all wrapped up in a bow and ready for you to tear into like an eager five-year-old. Well, with the holiday season upon us, we got to thinking, and we decided that we should make Archivos even more of a gift. So from now until January 1st, we're extending a 25% discount on storyteller subscriptions to all our storytelling family. Just go to app.archivos.digital and sign up for a one-year storyteller subscription. And at the payment window, enter the code HOLIDAYARCHIVOS2017. All one word, all lowercase, Except for the numbers, because they're numbers and, and you, you can't. Anyway, that's Holiday Archivos 2017 to get 25% off a storyteller subscription to one of the coolest story development apps on the internet. And may the holiday season bring you closer to the people you love, introduce you to new friends, and give you many reasons to smile. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Kidge Johnson. The, the question that, that, that's really buried in that is, well, what kind of processes do you have for this kind of thing? Or is it instinctive? Or do, do, you know, do you find that your thought process changes as you shift genres? Yes, and yes, and yes. Uh, I think one thing is that I start with a, a pretty good database of books I've read uh, and a huge mix of books I've read. I never don't have this giant vocabulary that my mom 
basically encouraged as a child. I did crosswords when I was a little kid, so I learned a lot of words that I never did find out how to pronounce. Uh, but I, uh, I think that the sort of obsessive research that Dave was talking about at the beginning is part of it. Uh, because when I did Velvet Bow, I read everything Lovecraft wrote again. And I read it this time strictly with an eye to whether or not there was anything I could use. Uh, what did he do right? What did he do wrong? I noticed things like so much of what goes on is narrative. It's not scene. It's not scenic writing. It's not even fragments of scene embedded in narration. It's narrative. Unknown Kadath is just page after page after page without any actual scenic writing. So I took that away and said, how do I do that? My first draft of Velvet Bow was 55,000 words, which was 20,000 longer than the final version <laughs> because it rambled. It went in the same way Lovecraft did. It just went on endlessly. Whenever I got interested in something, I would like drool on for a while about a topic. And I had to cut all of that because I needed it to be, uh, while I, in principle, I wanted it to be the same length as Kadath, I realized that in practice it couldn't be unless I added more plot and then it wouldn't be uh, identical in it wouldn't be uh, sort of the beat. Yeah. It wouldn't be Kadath, exactly. Yeah. So it would have too many beats in order for me to tell a contemporary story. So uh, obsessively rereading Lovecraft and then rereading all of the Dreamlands materials uh, was very instrumental and taking extensive notes. Here's a two-word phrase he uses repeatedly. While I don't like that phrase, is there a way that I can manifest that phrase in some other way? Here's the only word in Lovecraft I didn't know, uh, which was shent, P-S-H-E-N-T, which is... Uh, uh, a uh, Egyptian headdress, but I sure didn't know that when I was 10, and I didn't know that when I was 18, and I started trying to find out, and I didn't know that until I was in my 30s. So, figuring out how do I want to deal with shents in my story so that I've got that little Easter egg for the people who love the original, <laughs> but not necessarily you know, slowing things down to tell you it's an Egyptian headdress, so therefore this guy has Egyptian looks or anything like that. You really loved writing that story, didn't you? I did. It was slow. It was really slow for me. Um, and during a lot of that, when I would talk to people, uh, my sort of writing cohort, I would talk about not liking it. But in fact, the absorption of those carefully crafted paragraphs and those elaborate sentences was really fun. Well, with so much source material to draw upon, your own experiences to draw upon, and, and your experience thus far in, in the writerly arts, I can only imagine it was it was it must have been like a a, a literary treasure trove for you. Where am I going to put this shiny bit? And and absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. The the thing is packed with Easter eggs, and so actually is uh, Riverbank, the one that the Wind in the Willows one. Um, most of the Easter eggs do not come from Graham. They come from other works of Edwardian or late Victorian fiction, or sometimes they come from P. G. Woodhouse. But since I was writing it strictly for the pleasure of two people, both of whom were very very well read, I was able to put in all kinds of little things. Nice. Kids, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask sure. one, <laughs> one last question. You gave an incredible interview uh, with uh, Odyssey Writers Workshops when you were the writer in residence there. Um, and, and friends, I, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. It really is a must read. Um, but one of the uh, points that you raised as as you were exploring your early days in writing was that you were very uncomfortable with plot with your initial forays into short fiction. 
And I'm wondering, I, I cannot imagine that given your quest for, for truth and knowledge and awareness that you have not uncovered what the root of that discomfort was. So I was wondering if you would be able to share that and, and share with our listeners how you were able to overcome that through subsequent writing efforts. When I was really young, I wasn't, I read everything and I read it really fast. And if I didn't understand all of it, I would just sort of finesse past that part, which means that there are a lot of books where I really had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I finished, um, I actually read uh, Lady Tatterley's Lover, an illicit copy of my mom's back, I was probably 11 or 12. Scandal. No, I know. No idea what all of that was going on because it's all so opaque about the actual wickedness. And I had no idea what wickedness looked like at that point, except that it got you in trouble. I knew that part because I'd read Scarlet Letter again with the wickedness. You had a baby and then you got in trouble. Um, but, <laughs> There's the message right there. <laughs> right. That, that was my takeaway from Scarlet Letter. Uh, if, you, if you behave poorly, you get stuck with a baby and somebody else gets away with it um, and feel sorry for himself because poor him. Poor him. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, the as far as the plot thing goes, I really didn't understand plot. And my first book, The Fox Woman, I had no idea how to write a plot. So the book accreted. I would, it started as a 6,500 word short story and then I just kept inserting scenes and I, and then I would realize that I didn't have very much happening. So I'd quick have something happen and then I would have to insert more scenes to justify what I had just made happen. And so the book ends up uh, structured almost entirely around the seasons. Uh, so at least I had a spine for the book because I sure didn't have a plot. <laughs> and uh, I, I had like one big emotional movement for each of the characters, and that's all that I had happen. But what I figured out after that, as I started to teach these other classes, is that plot, part of why I was having trouble with plot is that I was being really conditioned to, especially in fantasy, um, a certain kind of plot. I'd been conditioned to a plot where there's a clear antagonist, where there's a clear sense of, you know, uh, the good guys versus the bad guys and whatever's going on between the good guys is necessary to counter the bad guys. And maybe there's a twist and you find out the bad guy isn't the bad guy, but there's always an antagonist instead of the other five sorts of fiction that Aristotle or whoever it was said, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of those guys. So I, there was a lot of uh, uh, me starting to put together what works in plots. I started teaching the novel workshop and I have the uh, good luck to have Barbara Webb uh, teach it with me, who is the best plotter I have ever met. Um, she is incredibly fantastic. And just listening to her as the two of us would co-teach these different novel outlines, I realized what was what I was missing. I realized that um, there are actually four plots to each book, um, which was a new discovery for me. <laughs> Because I thought there was only one, and maybe your bad guy had a plot too, but it was the inverse of the good guy's plot. Um, and then I realized, no, there's like there, there's the inner plot, and then there's an interpersonal plot, and then there's the events, and then there's also the fact it's all taking place against a changing world. And once you realize that all four of these things are happening, then you realize that they're going to intersect in interesting ways. And whenever one of them starts to slow down, you just jump to the next one, uh, and then you bring that one up. And you keep catching up. There's always one lagging a little, and you keep bringing that one forward. And that's that's a novel. That's everybody's novels, actually. That's intriguing. So, so basically, by by analyzing and identifying the the main story threads, you are then empowered as the writer to 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 weave a much a much more articulate tapestry from those threads. 
Exactly. It becomes much denser uh, because it's not, and this is a problem in in genre is that, uh, all genres, uh, that often we will confuse the inner story with the interpersonal story. And we see this all the time in romance where, uh, where the fact that you meet the right person and you get married substitutes for character change um, because there's a feeling that those two are the same thing. And in science fiction, you'll often have things where a character changes, but their relationships with people don't change at all. Uh, and similarly in fantasy, when I say to people, fantasy writers, tell me about your book. The first thing they do is tell me about the world. <laughs> they tell the world story, not the plot. So they're obviously confusing the fact that the events of the story are not the same as the world in which the story takes place, although the two should regulate each other. And that's why so many fantasy novels have truly terrible plots, because they're just going back to this same old, you know, coming of the king or, you know, quest saga, because all they really care about or the thing they care most about is their world, their world building. Right, right. Uh, kids, uh, the clock has actually sprouted tentacles uh, uh, and is tearing a hole in space time. I think it's pissed. Uh, and I think that's because we've kind of gone over time. But oh, my God, what a delight. Thank you so much. This has been a genuine pleasure, man. We so appreciate you Thank making you. the time. Yeah, absolutely. I had a fantastic time. So wow. thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, we did, too. We did, too. Al. Holy crap, there was a lot of writerly goodness strewn before us uh, over those past 20-ish minutes. Um, what, what are you packing up and, and taking with you for your, for your writer's toolkit? Honestly, the, the thing about immersion into related culture, I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. because, because of how my nerd brain works, I immediately go, oh, like time after time. Um, for, <laughs> lis <laughs> for listeners who have not seen that which is probably everybody um time after time is a very very odd movie in which christopher reeve's character is so if i rem i'm remembering this correctly mm -hmm. he's so obsessed with jack the ripper and his time period that he immerses himself in the culture the locations the clothes everything and time travels through sheer force of will and it was one of those films i only ever saw once when i was entirely too young to see it but the idea has always kind of stuck with me and i find that concept of cultural sympathetic magic really appealing. And I, I love how Hidge is very overt about it and is aware of it and uses it. Yeah. And I feel yeah. a lot of writers could benefit from acknowledging that that's always a tool in the box, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. it's two steps further up the line from, well, here's the playlist for my character. Well, and it's it is it's very liberating uh, uh, yes. when when you step away from from as kids observed the world and the expectation of the story of that world and and suddenly cast yourself into the void because it is chaos and pandemonium out there when you abandon the world as the foundation for your story. Uh, but those for with good stories, those tapestries, those those threads of story when you work from the inside out, when you work for those interpersonal uh, and personal stories. Those threads manifest, and you will find them and can weave them into a, a, a very surprising story, I think. Absolutely. For me, it was, well, it was two things. Actually, it was the very graceful execution of the word pseudonymous. <laughs> that just, I practice that. Oh Every my. day in front of the mirror, I say pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. See? Pseudonymous. That literally yeah. seized my brain for about four seconds. It was just like, holy <laughs> crap, that was awesome. Uh, but <laughs> the, uh, the, the writer thing, <laughs> excuse me, 
it, it really was, as I mentioned when it first came up, the idea of of allowing yourself the freedom and accepting the fact that as you are outlining a novel, you may not actually write that son of a gun. I, I just find that exercise to be so... Uh, empowering as a writer because you get the practice and exploration of plot and character and evolution and development, but the outlining process is so much more compact, hopefully, than the actual writing of a, you know, 80,000 word story or whatever, even a, a, a six or 7,000 word short story. Uh, that concept of, of exercising your creativity in that way uh, is is absolutely fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm that, that's that's what I'm taking with me. So, wow. Okay, guys, literary goodness to be had by all. Play that back over and over again, as I know you will. Um, you should, certainly. And But here's the awesomeness of the Archivos Podcast Network. In one week, we're going to bring Kidge back. We're going to bring Al back. I will be here. You can't get rid of me. I'm the host. Uh, and we'll be adding to that algorithm of awesomeness uh, a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who shall set the table for a brainstorming feast. And oh, friends, what a feast it will be. But that's going to be seven days from now. And I know that's a long damn time. Al, help our listeners out, man. What can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to, to make that time just fly on the heels of Hyperion? Well, this is always a really tough question. And I think at this time of year, it's especially tough. Mm, because fun true. Everybody, when we get to this this kind of time, just wants to, you know, show up for work in flip-flops with a board game and go, I'll be over here. Let me know if anything. <laughs> yeah. um, so here's a nice, easy one. You get a project which is ongoing at the moment, and and it has characters in it because characters are good. I've read <laughs> books; they work well. Um, spend a couple of hours building pl a playlist for that character, and not the thing which always happens when I try this, which is every single one of my characters listens to ACDC <laughs> and Elbow on shuffle. But actually, think about four or five pieces of music that define this person, and think about why. And if you want to do the go, go the whole hog, go the whole hog on this, do something that Chuck Wendig talks about quite a lot. Talk to him. <laughs> write, three, write like a little three hundred word conversation with your character, going. So why do you like this song? And uh, see what they say back. That would be awesome. Just just dialogue. You know, no description, yeah. no nothing. Just dialogue. That's awesome. I love that. That that we can do, Al. I think given the holiday season, and this will be dropping like right after Christmas, so everybody's still playing with their, you know, their transformers and their and their, I don't know, I don't know what the kids are getting these days, damn it. But you know, whatever they're doing, they're doing it. Uh, that's good advice. I, I will tell you, friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So if you go out and look for the wow, look for the holy schmaholies look for the awesomeness in the world <laughs> with that intent in your heart trust me friends you will find it we'll be back in just seven days until then you guys stay cool stay frothy and stay awesome and we'll talk to you soon bye bye This episode of Archivos Insights is copyright 2017 by Wonderthink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org. 
theme music for this episode of Archivos Insights was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash archivospodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.